three, two, one, and we're live. I'm here with a really good friend, Thikshika. I haven't spoken to her in years. Um, at the moment, Thikshika is working more or less as a, a lawyer slash paralegal for the HMRC. I would describe her as an activist for the Tamil cause. She's got a lot of interesting life experience and stories. And as you know, this podcast is partly about navigating your 20s and kind of the struggles that we're going through, trying to find ourselves career-wise, uh, relationship-wise, living up to other people's expectations. And uh, we're going to dig deep. Thick Sheikha. Oh Let's, uh, we've known each other for a while. Why don't you give us uh, a 30 to 45 second introduction about yourself? So I was born in uh, northeast of an island called Sri Lanka, but what I would like to call is Tamil yep. Um My family fled from the war that was happening there, and we came to this country as a refugee. I came here when I was seven years old. I have now lived here for, I think, uh, let me do the math, 19 18 years. Yeah, 19 years. Thank you. <laughs> I've lived here for 19 years. Um, yeah, I think that's all I can say. Okay. Um, I think I think anyone who's listening to Thick Shika is a bit shy because <laughs> okay. it's recorded, and that's what happens when recording these conversations. Um, but we spent the better part, I, w- I would say, of approximately what two hours mm-hmm. over pancakes, chatting about life yeah. and uni and everything you've been yeah. through since, and catching up. And I just want you to cover what was the first. 10 years of your life in this country like it's 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 a big ask maybe take us back from um when when your when your father fled here and or when you were fled i guess and you arrived as a re- as a refugee with the rest of your family aged 7 what was the development like from that period what was primary school like and then we'll move on to secondary school um so a lot of people assumed that because I was the youngest, yeah. I would be the one who adapts the most. Yeah. But um, what happened was the opposite. So I did not adapt to this society straight away because back home, I was the kid that never went home after school. We finished school at like 12 o'clock uh, because I was in kindergarten. Okay. Okay. Yeah? yeah. So I would come home. I had a group of friends, mainly boys, which my mom still points out to me today. And um, I was known for climbing trees, eating jam, because it was a jam tree, so eating jam, uh, and um, always catching these flies and feeding the jams to the flies. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was very much apparently a tomboy. Um, so I had a very, li- uh, like a biz- I would say, a happy livelihood back, here, back home. Um, and then I came to this country and then I was told to just stay home. You can't go and play around outside because my parents lived in fear. You know, they, they, they didn't know who to trust. Uh, we only had like a handful of people that we trusted. So I can't go out when I wanted to go out. I, I had to have someone accompany me wherever I have to go. Um, and then school just, everybody had their own cliques, you know. And I was this kid who couldn't speak English, who didn't know what was happening. And... I'm embarrassed to say this, but it took me a very long time to finally accept that I'm going to live in this country. I was nearly a teenager when I fully accepted that this is the place I'm going to stay and I have to like work my way here because um, what I did was by rejecting the society and by rejecting me being here, I didn't focus on learning the language. 
I didn't focus on uh, trying to adapt to society. Um, I was very much on my own for the best part of my primary life. I did have, near the end, I had um, <clears throat> made friends with this Chinese girl. Hi, Annie, if you're listening to this. What uh, primary school was this? Uh, Friant Primary School. You went to Friant? Yes, I so did. So you knew Akil? Yes, I did. That's yes, crazy. I did. I did know Akil when he was a baby. Uh, well, I was a baby too. Um, so, but near the end, I became friends with um, um, uh, a Vietnamese girl and a Malaysian girl. And um, there were, near the end, they, we, we became a clique of our own. And um, so that was my primary school life. But I didn't, uh, I struggled heavily with English, with all the subjects actually. I didn't want to study. I didn't, I was not, I was not even the average kid. I was like below average who didn't want to be in school, who didn't want to be in this, who didn't want to participate in in um, in the school activities. Okay. Yeah. I do have one weird story to tell, though. Go I don't want to say it <laughs> while I get it recorded. Cause you can always cut it out. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> there was an incident where, this is when I realized I think I'm different. Um, or I, and I realized that I'm not the type of person, I was really young when I realized that my skin... Uh, color has has a different different meaning here. Okay. So when I came to this country, I had this belief that I'm brown. So um, and Kingsbury and Pryant predominantly had brown people as well. Yeah. So of course I had sense of uh, familiarity with them, and I thought, oh look, I'm not gonna feel or like left out or anything. Because mm. when I was home, when they said we're going to London, I assumed everything to be white. I just, yeah, I just had this vivid vision that everything would be white and I'll be the only brown person. But I came, I come here and we lived in Kingsbury and it was just like, you know, I was seeing people of, like, who looked like me. So in, um, so I, when I came here, I assumed that I would be bullied by, you would, at least uh, other people would assume that I would be bullied by like predominantly white people. Yeah. But I was bullied by people who looked like me, but didn't but and uh, but didn't you know understand my struggles, um, and they bullied me for silly reasons like I couldn't speak English, mm. but and I couldn't connect with them. I was like, but me and you look alike. Like why aren't we helping each other? Yeah. Like you know wh why are you treating me differently? Like you know how am I any different from you? You can just speak another language. True. I w just because I can't speak the same language as you, why would I be any different? Yeah. And uh, I think this. One of the main things that showed me I was different is in year six we had this school play because we're going we're we're in year six and we're going to move to high school right so we did this big play and um, the teacher's idea was to do like around the world theme and there was like a Bollywood theme so this, then I went I was like I want to be part of this Bollywood theme because I'm a dancer too I want to get involved and then I was told by the like the kids who are <laughs> literally my age too, um, they were like, no, you, you can't decide the songs. We will decide the songs. And I was like, but if you're trying to represent India for say, yeah. India is a, a multi-diverse country and there's, you know, India doesn't just have one language, it has many languages. It's so diverse. That's what India is known for. 1.3 uh, billion people. Yeah, people. Yeah. And there's an entire state that, uh, that's called Tamil Nadu and where people predominantly speak Tamil, but there's other languages too. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, that's when I started fighting. I was like, nah, that what you guys are doing is wrong because I have a right to be here too. Who are you guys to tell me that I can't be, I can't influence your decisions? And we were, how old are you when you're in your six? You're, you're 11. Yeah, 11. 10, 10 to 11. 10 to 11. 10 11. 11 yeah. At the age of 10, I was saying, no, this is not the way it works. 
if you're going to talk about a place, then we have to include everybody in it. And you have to include, I would have to have a say. And I think that's where my sort of standing up for what is right. Uh, when I realize something's going wrong, I have to, like, my mouth wouldn't stop. Like, it has to open and I have to say something. Yes. Um, in the end, uh, it got into a huge argument and um, I decided I, I couldn't be part of a team that didn't accept who I was. And who, if they wanted to portray a certain image, I, I couldn't stop them. So, and I didn't have the energy to stop them because, of course, I struggled with English and I didn't want to give them more reasons to, you know, treat me even differently. Yeah. So, um, but I remember being disappointed then. And then they did a story about this, like this mythological story that we all called Diwali, the story behind Diwali. And I didn't agree with the story. And again, that was <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is this is not the right story. <laughs> and I think you guys are saying something wrong. I remember fighting with Mrs. Patel. I don't know if did you go to Paris? No, I did not. It's a lady, and she was the one who was teaching us. I was like, you're, you're wrong. What makes you think you're right? And I was like, I was told a different story. And I was just adamant that the story we were being told, that's the Rama and Sita story, was wrong. And she she couldn't believe that I was this uh, like you know this young and telling her that she was wrong because she's a teacher and I'm the student. And I was like, nope, it's wrong. And they did a, like a, an assembly on it, and I, I couldn't watch. So I, I purposely made noises just so I can be let out. So wait, let me just straight. So Tikshika's incredibly principled. If you haven't already got that already. You're telling me during a religious ceremony, <laughs> you start making noises. So yeah. they would kick you out because you didn't believe in their version yeah. of the creation story. No. Um, that's really interesting. What, tell me, um, I asked Akil a similar question. Tell me what it was like transitioning from Friant. You, you know, you're just finding your feet as someone that's, you know, for a predominantly long time, you know, trying to learn the language finally realizing, look, if I'm going to make any friends, I need to start speaking some English. What was your, um, what were some of your fears and insecurities uh, going into high school? As soon as I went into high school, things changed because I, I walked into high school and I already knew two girls who, who was going to the same school. And I was like, look, I have a click. I'm cool. cool. Um, and then um, like in the second week, I realized there was a girl who was very similar to me in the sense that she didn't have anybody. And she was always in the library. And like, she didn't talk to a lot of people. Kushbu. So I went up to her and I said, do you want to join us? Like, Do you want to hang around with us? And she said, yes. So we were like, OK, we'll add her in. And so then uh, three of us became four of us. And we were like, okay, this, uh, and all of us came from different countries. We all spoke different languages, different cultures, but none of, like, we were all getting along fine. Great. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so I was living a high life because they didn't make me feel different. Great. Uh, but one thing that did make me feel different was uh, I always had a teacher coming after me uh, in classes, like the assistant teachers who, okay. who help kids who, who are not doing well or who can't speak the language. Great. And I could never get rid of her. This lady was on my case. I could not speak to my friends in class or like, you know, chat. Do like she was always like, can you get back to study, please? Get I was like, I need to get rid of this lady if I wanted to have one. Yeah. So that's when I was, that was, that's when I was like, okay, maybe the reason why she's there is because I'm underperforming and I'm not doing well. And right at that time is when um, tsunami happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was in year seven, when 2004, um, tsunami happened, and I was like, uh, when tsunami happened, um, major things changed in my life. Again, I was really young. Um, I was, 
I, I was a girl, I mean, a, a child who used to believe whatever their parents said. But at that age, uh, I started to question like um, things like, what is, what is the meaning of God if God was going to let this natural disaster happen? I had questions like that in my mind. Uh, because uh, tsunami affected uh, uh, where, I where I used to live, um, so uh, northern parts of uh, Sri Lanka. And uh, the casualties were mainly Tamils when it hit Sri Lanka. So, and uh, we had a Tamil TV channel which would just show videos on loop of what was happening there. And I was just too depressed, and I had these questions in my head that I couldn't couldn't comprehend. I was too young, yeah. but and my parents were not in the right state of mind to answer these questions. Like, is God real? Wow. Can God on? Like, I kept asking, why would God take away kids who He just brought into this world? You know, I was too young to ask these questions, you know. And that's when I picked up a, uh, the Harry Potter book. And I delved into the Harry Potter Which book. One? Uh, the first one. The Philosopher's Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I still remember this. I would have a dictionary on one side, and I would have the Harry Potter book on one side. And whatever words I didn't understand, I would underline it. I would look at the dictionary and try to understand the, me uh, the meaning of the word. Mm. And because the Harry Potter world was full of magic and... You know, it, I was uh, I escaped from my current world, current reality, and you know I started to delve into this magical world. And uh, Harry Potter gave me some so it inspired me in ways that I don't know how to explain it properly. Um, and that's when I think after like getting used to the fact of like okay, I like reading books, I like getting into someone else's imagination, and it kick-started my imagination, and I was like, okay. Um, then uh, we progressed on to year eight, and this lady was still following me. Uh, <laughs> she would not let go of me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, then I remember being introduced to this teacher who did English literature, and I fell in love with Shakespeare and his work, and the way she interpreted his work. And I... Uh, and. I got it. Like um, for the first time in my life, I understood what she was talking about and the way she was teaching. And I started when I would go home and I would do my own, like you know, reading or just like reading a little bit of the meanings of like the things I didn't understand because we're talking old, old English. And um, then we had an English test, and nobody thought I would pass. But you know, do you know the markings one to six A, blah yeah. blah. And I got six A. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And. That wasn't Just predicted. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and uh, and that wasn't predicted. Wow. That were nobody said that like, she would do well. Nobody thought that like, she would do well because nobody had any faith. Mm. But I, even I didn't have faith in myself, mm. and that was the turning point. What led you to? Um, what do you? What 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 was? Uh, what were the confluence of factors that um, you feel allowed you to achieve such a grade? Was it the Harry Potter book, or was it the idea of, that for the first time you felt passionate about something related to English? What what made you get that six A? Um, I think it was um, being passionate about the work and the fact that I can find meaning and I can relate it to myself. It wasn't, um, you know, with books. The, one, the amazing thing about books is you can put yourself as a character, or you can somehow relate it to your life. And I, I found some sort of meaning in his work. And I think it was the teacher, the way she explained it, and the way she uh, forced us to imagine. And like, so I, I was trying to picture, uh, picturize what was happening through these words. And I got interested. 
you know and I thought and then that little confidence from her like oh you're doing really well like this makes sense and the point she was appreciating my points and I felt like oh look I'm being heard here for the first time so why would I uh you know not try hard why would I you know take a step back after knowing how this feels like and I liked that, you know, not uh, liked the idea of knowing what's the answer or thinking differently or having an opinion on something. Maybe that's why I'm in the field that I'm in. Yeah. Um, is, I, and I just like that feeling, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering you. No, you're, you're answering everything very well. Um, I'm just, there's so many different angles and directions that we could take this conversation. And in, in the back of my head, I'm trying to go with the flow, but I'm also trying to think, okay, you know, how to, how to piece this together. One thing that's always struck me about you in, uh, in high school, and this is what we were talking about. I said there are three things I remember you being in high school. One uh, was someone who's incredibly fiery, um, feisty. You fight for what you believe in. Um, and that overlaps with someone who's principled. You're very principled in your beliefs. Big words. Um, almost, almost to a fault, actually. You're so, you, you know, you really have high standards for yourself and high standards for other people. Another thing I really like about you is that you, I think you still are very proactive. You're a team leader. Even your, your story in the beginning of, like, rallying your friends, like, like there were little troops, you're like, right, Kushbu, you're, you're coming with us, we're a gang of three, right, you, you're coming with us, we're a gang of four. Um, so you're very proactive, you're feisty and fiercely principled, and then the third one is that you're incredibly loyal, you're incredibly loyal to your family, and you're incredibly loyal to your friends, and the causes that you believe in, and I know you're putting your fingers in your ears now because you have an issue with taking compliments, which is another chapter. The, the bit I want to move on to is, while you're in high school, can you touch upon kind of finding yourself and finding what you believe in? Because one North Star that seems to be very clear is you, you have a very um, clear cause, which is the cause of the Tamil people. And without politicizing things too much, can you just give anyone listening an idea, a taste of, you know, what, it, what you know, the origins of the... The, the kind of plight of the Tamil people. Some people may have seen the Channel 4 documentary mm -hmm. Killing Fields and have a small taste of it. And what was the turning point for you in your own kind of journey of self-discovery as you're going through high school that made you so politically active? Okay, this is a big, big, big question. It's a big part of <laughs> yes, it is. Um, um, uh, let's see where we can start with this. Okay. So when I lived back home, even though the war was happening, I was very much secluded from what was happening by my parents. They made a conscious decision not to include me and to let me know because I was really young. I came here, if I, I was just five, five five years old when I was there, right? I came here when I was seven. Um, then during my journey here to UK, um, I had to stay in France for a month um, for immigration purposes. And it was, that was when I was introduced to the issues back home and what was happening and uh, how there was uh, freedom fighters fighting for our rights. When you say you had to stay in France for a month, was this when you were seven years old? Yeah, yeah, it was during my journey. So as early as seven, you were introduced to the issue. Yeah, yeah. So that's when I knew that, you know, there's, uh, there, are, uh, there are Tamils out, uh, back home who are fighting for their self-determination, who are fi fighting for our self-determination. Um, but I didn't think much of it because, you know, I, I didn't have any connection to it, to it at all. 
And then I came to UK. Um, and then after we settled a bit, my dad started to tell our stories. Um, stories of uh, his journey to this country. And then slowly my mom started telling me stories. So yeah, they started telling me stories that um, I couldn't believe that they went through because they never uh, told us before. Okay. Um, so let me just give you a, a brief history of what's happening in uh, Sri Lanka. Um, so I'm going to openly say this, whether you agree or disagree, uh, or whether your followers agree or disagree, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, there's a genocide happening in Sri Lanka as we speak. Um, the Sri Lankan state has been systematically um, erasing Tamil, uh, pe uh, killing Tamil people, erasing Tamil history, um, all on the basis that you know they have, uh, because they're the majority in that country, they have the right to that land. Um, history tells us that you know Tamils have a big history, a big history, big influence in the land. You know, we we also lived there as whatever's. Okay, I'm going to say this wrong. I know because <laughs> I'm going to. Um, history shows that you know we have as. We have that, um, I can say this in Tamil, but I'm going to struggle Just in English. Uh, um, wait, I'm going to have to see it. It's on my phone. Say it in Tamil then, while we're, while we're waiting. Um, so we say, Engelman, so our land is ours. It, it belongs to us. Okay, that's how we see Tamililam. Okay. Um, so our right for self-determination started soon after. Um, the, so we were colonized by the British. Uh, soon after the British left, what, before they left, what they did was they unified uh, the Tamil Kingdom in the north and the uh, Sinhalese Kingdom uh, in the south. Uh, they unified them together to make it into Sri Lanka. And what they did, uh, they did that for administrative purposes. Uh, and because to make their life easier, they were like, let's put these two different cultures who don't uh, mirror in any way. Let's put them together and let's call this independence and let's give it to the majority of the people who were at the time Sinhalese. So um, there is a lot of history, but I'll try to summarize. Um, the Sinhalese ideology, uh, the nationalistic ideology is that uh, we, m we must always uh, uh, preserve the Sinhalese nationalism and f uh, foster that and uh, preserve that and push that forward. Mm. And slowly um, the Tamils were being attacked um, s in all, not just you know physically attacked, but uh, at their livelihood was attacked, whether it was through education or through legislative acts that stopped them from, um, uh, from going to universities. Um, the Tamils were predominantly working in uh, government departments and their jobs were taken away. Uh, so their livelihood was being uh, signif significantly attacked. Um, and then started, you know, the physical attack. And then uh, Tamil resistance was formed. Um, a group of people got together and said, enough was enough. You know, uh, we deserve a self-determination here. Uh, and they, di they did a referendum, uh, which is called Vatukote Resolution, where um, 98%, I might be wrong with the percentage, of Tamils said they want Tamililam. They want a land of their own that is separate from Sri Lanka. And they named that land Tamililam. An independent state. So an independent state, yeah. Okay. An independent state of their own. Um, so throughout these, the war, ha the you know, the struggle has been going on for more than six, uh, around 60 years. And throughout these 60 years, you can see evidences of uh, genocide where Tamils were systematically attacked uh, for no reasons uh, just because they're Tamil. 
Um, but what hit me most was my dad's stories when he told me that, um, so my grandfather worked in a tea estate. Um, he was a, a clerk and he was a much respected member of the of that tea estate. And uh, he- for, for myself included, yeah. what a tea estate is. Um, so it's where, um, British people are like yeah. you where we get our tea where tea grows to yeah. tea leaves and so uh, like a tea plantation sort of tea thing. plantations yes okay. yeah yeah it's called a tea estate uh, that's where my dad uh, was born where he grew up for I think till he was 10 years old okay. um, and uh, my grandfather was uh, for one particular estate he was the guy the clerk for that estate. So he mingled a lot with um, the British people, the Australians and Singalese. And he had a good rapport with all these individuals. But um, what happened was near the end, for no reason, uh, the main reason being that this family is Tamil and they're doing really well, my grandfather's house was burnt down by the uh, Sri Lankan army. And my parents and, the, uh, m not my parents, my dad and his family had to uproot their life and move to another town. And soon afterwards, my grandfather died. And to this day, my dad says, among other things, one of the reasons that affected him the most was the fact that he lost his home. What he, you know, he looked after not only his family, but he looked after six other, six other of his sisters. He had made, uh, he was the eldest son and he had six sisters. And he looked after their family and their kids. And uh, all of a sudden it was taken away from him purely because he was Tamil. Um, and then start my dad's journey started in um, in Sri Lanka, and I asked him once, "What was your turning point, and why? Like, why did you want to come to UK? Like, what made you decide that?" And he told me a story which <sighs> it's hard to take in for me because it's very close to home. He said he was uh, on his uh, bicycle and he was going somewhere, and he had my sister in the back, and he was stopped at a checking point. In Sri Lanka, used to have a lot of checking points. Um, where there will be police, uh, Sri Lankan police officers who um, who are predominantly speaking Sinhalese and are Sinhalese. Um, he was stopped and uh, they asked him questions as to where he was going and they checked him and then um, and then the army officer turned to my sister uh, and he said, I want to check her. So well, um, at that stage, my dad was able to help my sisters because he spoke the language. He, he was a father who spoke the Sinhalese language, so he fought with the officer and said, there's no way you can touch my child, there's no female officer there, you can't touch my child, and he fought with the guy and he took my sister and he left. But my dad asked me one question, imagine if I was a father who didn't speak that language. How long would it have taken for that girl to be whatever you know they had intentions of doing to that girl? Yeah. You know, And it hit me because that girl was my sister. Exactly. You know, and yeah. that was the turning point for him. And during, um, I'm sure a lot of people got exposed to what happened in Sri Lanka through the Channel 4 um, Killing Fields documentary. And we hear about what happened to the girls near the end and how they were mutilated and how they were raped. And when, and those were there, there's so many figures and like, you know, they're just other people. And then all of a sudden they hit home because it could have been my sister. Mm. And that's when I related to every single other Tamil people out there. Uh, my dad told me like, there's so many stories. He told me once um, at midnight, um, they um, the army officers came and said uh, all the, told all the families to come out, and they rounded everybody up. And they told my they put my mom uh, onto one side, and my dad. All the men had to line up. They all had to line up, and uh, and then my dad told me that. So they're all lining up, and the guy 
not next to him the guy ne- the guy next to the other guy yeah. how do i say that i don't know well the the guy two spaces away from yeah dad, dad yes yeah. my dad actually witnessed that guy being killed by a hammer god yeah while while Everybody was being lined up. What was the reason that they killed this guy? Was this just a show of force? It was just to show power. It was to show that, you know, it was to uh, put terror in you because at that time the arm resistance was growing Mm. and it was just to put that fear in you. To make an example. Yeah, of of if you were to go and join that resistance, this is what would happen to you. And again, it's these tiny questions my dad asked. What would happen if that at that moment, that was me? Mm. And that time they had my brother and my sister. Mm. So my mom would have been a widow with two kids, two young kids, God. not having, like my dad was the main breadwinner. And you wouldn't have been born. I wouldn't have been born. And then he told me something so disturbing. He said, um, yeah, he told me something so disturbing was, uh, he would say, he would blame himself. He would say, uh, I'm a coward in a sense, because uh, whenever we something like this would happen, we would always say, oh, I'm a family man. Like, this is my wife. These are my kids. You can let us go. We're, we're a family man. We're a family man. That was the excuse they had to tell the um, the officers t- as a way to run off and say, look, I'm not going to be part of this. But there were t- many men who were not family men, mm. you know, and they, they, they didn't have that excuse at the time. Mm. So, you know, my dad would say, I'm, I'm I, you know, he feels a little bit of, uh, he feels guilty for saying those words. Mm. Um, the disturbing story that he told me was he once saw a van full of girls uh, being taken away and the army officers uh, covered their eyes with the girls' bras. And that just, that just, no matter how many documentaries you see, no matter how many news articles you read, stories like that, my dad actually saw this happen in front of, right in front of his eyes. You know, and he's, it takes a lot of gut for him to say this to his daughter. You know, and... And I couldn't, I couldn't process all of this information and just still be the same person. Mm. You know, I, uh, and when I would ask him, like, what do I do? What can I do? You know, I have to do something. You can't tell me these stories. And I'm just sitting here, like, living this privileged life. And, you know, that's when he said, you, in order to fight, you need to be able to speak. You need to be able to go into um, places where, like, you know, uh, big professionals come in and you need to be able to put your point across well. You know, f- and then he just said, for that, you need to study law. And that started my legal career here. Wow. I'm sorry, wow, 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 wow. I don't even know how to follow up with that. We're going to take a small break. Thank you very much. Great. And we're back. Um, I think we needed to take a break because what you told me was so heavy. The only way I can really think of, tr- you know, naturally transitioning is to ask you, when you at that point when you heard your your dad's uh, experiences and you decided you wanted to pursue a career in law and you decided that you wanted to leverage your talents to to help other people um what was your first step like what was your first step into activism was it like going into a meeting was it writing a series of things down in your notebook i know at one time you even were as bold as to say you wanted to be the prime minister of sri lanka so and i know you're smiling but you shouldn't be embarrassed about that because at that moment you know it was a legitimate dream and it could still be you never know what was your first step into like venturing down that alley of activism Uh, i have to say that's an ignorant dream um if i wanted to say that statement correctly is i 
dream for a day where I have a land of my own and it's called Tamlilim and if uh, and I have and they have a democratic society and I, I, w- I want to you know participate in that uh, in an elections in that type of sense that's what the dream would be the real dream the I was too yeah I had the mature dream <laughs> um, I'm so sorry but I'm gonna ask you to ask me that question one more time so to be fair it was a long-winded question I guess the question was after speaking to your dad and deciding that's it I want to do something about it what was your first step was it attending some sort of meeting or was it writing a list of goals down what was the very first thing you did after having that chat with your dad so um every year um in the uk they on 27th of november uh, they would do a remembrance day event for all the um uh, people who sacrificed their life for our struggle and i used to go to these uh, events with my family and uh in one of these events uh, my sister and my brother was uh, approached uh, this organization called tyo which i'm now part of um was uh, they approached my sister and my brother and asked for them to join it's TYO, Tamil organization yes okay. yeah very happy that you know this um so uh and then my sister got heavily involved and as you know with tamil families they don't let a girl out till unless someone else is going with that girl yeah. and my family thought take the youngest one because yeah. she will save you because my sister was a very shy person and i was the person who can scream <laughs> exactly. and so they was like take her and then um so i was now introduced to a bunch of people who felt the same way as me mm. you know i felt like oh i've come i met the people you know mm. like they they were saying things to me that i felt in my head but i was too afraid to say out mm. and um i realized i had a lot of things in common but then again i was really young i didn't know how to articulate my views properly i didn't know how i could help so at that point they wanted us i just did various silly th- not i wouldn't say silly please cut the silly the word silly mm. uh, i did things that they asked us to do whether it was to um uh, do dancing for shows mm. but what we were trying to do is create an awareness in this country of what was happening in uh, Sri Lanka and how the international community had to get together. Uh, but I think the biggest impact would be when uh, near the end of the war, we called Muliwaikal, when it happened, when it started happening, we Tamils went and sat in front of Parliament Street, mm. um, Parliament House actually, and we all went and sat down. I rem- we were one of the families that were called to come in really early um and to wait till they say and we all go sit down on the road and where that i think that was my first uh on like you know purposeful or like fully understanding what i'm doing activism mm. when i took when i went to that road and i was like i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna fight for what is right and i'm going to you know scream the from the top of my head and ask for international community to step in for the community that you know gave me a home to step in which is the british community uh and then we protested for 100 days that was during my gcc times it was uh the protest happened ar- around april and our exams were majored mm. and i remember couldn't even have time to revise because i was there attending that uh place every single day for the 100 days wow. every other day for 100 wow. days me and my sister even stayed over so we would go and uh we would leave like go in the evening and stay over throughout the night and come home early in the morning. Were people camping with tents? Yeah, yeah. Wow. We blocked the roads for two days, and then of course our police got involved, and then it became a huge thing, and they gave us this tiny park uh, near uh, Parliament House, 
and then we were there for 100 days um and of course after that uh, they say it's the n- that was the end of the war and and then when i saw the lack of um help that we didn't get like you know nobody cared that's and i became very demotivated about the struggle and i and i just gave up mm. like many tamils out there i gave up mm. uh i thought to myself if this doesn't bring the world together to can't bring an end to something that's so obviously out there then what is the point before that i used to have this firm belief that one person can change anything mm. you know and i could be that one person mm. and every person around me could be that one person mm. and soon after that after seeing the how this com- uh, how the world reacted to what happened in sri lanka i i just gave up on people i gave up on myself i gave up on the struggle and i have to openly say that because that's what happened because i can say that now because um now i'm again part of the struggle again i'm still now uh heavily involved in the activism and heavily trying to make an awareness and i can see that was i and i can appreciate that i went through that phase to learn something about myself mm. and that was not to be demotivated not to listen to what everybody else is telling me that we've lost you know um this uh this a uh, great guy that who used to uh, give us like um who used to talk in conferences he said never allow the others to give you a defeatist mentality which is how they try to silently get through and win you over mm. because they make you believe you've lost they make you believe that you don't have any chance of winning and that defeatist mentality is what tamils had during that time and they some of them still do have and which is a mentality that i'm trying to break because with the way the politics is going i feel like this is not the time for us to give up we have lost so much and we have lost in so many people for us to give up now mm. you know we cannot we sorry we cannot get too comfortable in our privileged life in this uh, in in the europe countries that we're living in uh we can't be we can't get into the daily routine of life and think okay that's the war is over we don't have to worry about that mm. um and i think that's what brought me back and of course i have to give credit to one of my really really close friends who saw me in uni and saw that you know she uh she saw that i had some sort of same um thoughts as her mm. and she approached me and she said let's work on this let's work on a project and that started a great friendship mm. and start put two people together who are very proactive very like she's very similar to me mm. and put both of us together and said let's create magic wow yeah that that's what i love about um when you speak about polit- politics and political struggle it's it's not tribal it's it's one that comes from personal experience and it w- it's one that is um rooted in identity but it's also incredibly altruistic you are looking to improve the lives of others it's not kind of red team versus blue team both in the sense of labor versus conservative or republican versus democrat and you speak about it almost people who are listening to it that are ignorant of the history will be saying oh this is very one sided but i think as someone who's experienced the struggle and whose parents have experienced the violence um of of the singhalese state you speak about it almost from a, an objective point of view in my view mm-hmm. yes Not you sp- <laughs> no of course because you speak with a degree of passion yeah. you you say what it is which is a genocide i'm obviously putting myself in hot water by taking a position on on a conflict that i don't know much about but there's still a degree of ob- objectivity when i speak to you one on one where you where you kind of address things in a factual manner mm. 
and you address things in a way that's not personal to Singhalese people. And I've seen you engaged in heated discussions with Singhalese people, but also be friends with Singhalese people. I don't think you're someone that's so tribal that you're only friends with Tamils. Mm-hmm. And that's something incredibly refreshing, and I think we can learn more from that. We'll segue. Um, we'll segue to... Okay, go for it. No, I will just say um, that I have nothing against the Sinhalese people. There are a lot of Sinhalese people who have helped us in the struggle. Um, who, when uh, in 1983, when lootings was happening, riots was happening, and Tamils were Tamil businesses and Tamil people were being killed, mm-hmm. the people who helped um, the most were the Sinhalese. They help. Uh, they put Tamils in their bunkers and helped hide them so that they were not. Uh, they won't get caught. Um, so it's n- this is not some sort of hatred towards Sinhalese people. It's purely against the state, mm-hmm. uh, a state that you know has these uh, chauvinistic national chauvinistic views mm. i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right no. um and you know it's it's the state it's the state that ha- we're saying is uh, you know has ideologies that are rooted in racism and hatred and that's what we're uh, trying to uh, fight against okay um i want to segue to university okay. so over pancakes we were talking and this fight that you had uh, and you have it now, and it's apparent, and I'm so glad it's back. We were Skyping, um, first year of university. Mm. Uh, you were studying law at Leicester. I was doing law and politics at Sussex. And while Skyping, I sensed the feisty, fiery, thick shika that I knew had lost a bit of that. And the reason I bring it up is because, you know, at uni, first year, you'd you're not quite in your 20s yet, but you're approaching there. I was in my 20s. Okay, so you were... <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, but th- I think the period that I spoke to you were 19 at the yeah. time. <laughs> Let's say that I'm so young. Okay, well, we're all young. But my point is, can you just give some context as to why you lost that confidence for that period can you maybe speak about the six months leading up to university and then what your first year of university was actually like the highs and the lows okay so again big questions um six months before university so i was uh retaking my final year okay i of a levels uh i had done terribly bad terribly terribly bad um, but I got three C's and okay. I got into uh, Birmingham City okay. to do law. But um, I think at that point I was so frustrated with life. I just wanted to leave home. I was, I just wanted to get out. You know, I wanted to be independent. Uh, and I still remember a conversation with my mom. I was like, I just wanted to leave. Just you know, I'm looking at halls. I'm gonna go. I, this is what I can do. This is all I can be. Mm. And I think she saw that I was not going in the right way. Mm. And she just, she didn't even shout at me. She just said. Dikshi, I know there's more, more, like you can do more. Just mm. listen to me and please for a year, just retake this year and see if you can do it. If you can't, I'll let you go, let you do whatever you want. Mm. But just for, for me, just take a step back and repeat this year. And looking back, I'm so, so thankful to her mm. because I feel like at that stage, uh, and the way my mindset was, I would have screwed up. I would have gone in the wrong way. I would have, uh, my mind was not in the right place. Um, so the repeat year was very much like a self-reflection. Uh, it was a bad time. It was a bad period because I didn't have a lot of faith in myself. Um, one of the things that I pride 
uh, like in myself is that I'm I'm confident about my ability. Yeah. I don't I don't need to compete with others because I know what I'm capable of and I know I'll do it to the best of my ability. So uh, and I lost that for some reason. I think for the way the society is shaped is grades somehow mean something to you mean like brings a value to you or like how much you're worth exactly and uh, three c's didn't makes me feel made me feel really shitty i was like i'm not worthy of anything mm. um uh, and i really didn't feel well i mean uh, my mindset was was that i couldn't do what was set out for me mm. and i had to really change that um like so like i was telling you in the uh restaurant um i was at a period in my life where you know my family was disappointed but not showing that they were disappointed but you know you can just see like from their face they're disappointed yeah. you know um uh there were some personal things happening in my life and you know my education that you know all this time i worked hard for all of a sudden i let it go mm. and you know that was not on my side to back me up you know, I always had something on my side. Look, I'm doing well in my education, dad. Parents, like, you know, back off. Mm. You know, I had nothing to back me up. I had nothing going for me. Mm. And I didn't understand how to pick myself up. Mm. Um, but slow and steady wins the race. Exactly. Patience definitely wins. We have to find, you have to find a way to uh, numb those um, very, very dark moments at late at night. You know, the inner voice that tells you, nah, you're not good enough. You are where you are supposed to be, you know. The ones that taste really, really horrible things, you have to shut them down. Exactly. And you have to, like a mantra, tell yourself, I'm, you know, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Who is, who is this, you know, whatever this mind was. So who are you, like if somebody tells that you that tells you that they're disappointed in you, who are you guys to question me? I can do this. Mm. Um, you have to have to believe in yourself if you're going to succeed in those dark moments. Mm. Um, me and my friend was talking about this the other day. Um, sometimes like confidence comes in weird ways like uh, you could be feeling down but all of a sudden you have this gut confidence mm. where you know like inside you can do this and it's it happens in rare moments mm. but it gives you that extra strength to do something that you thought was initially hard mm. and I think you really have to search within yourselves to go and find that um, and did I answer that so that's six months before uh, university yeah um, so um, the second time around, I applied to really good universities who are, uh, you know, who are decent legal league tables, respectable universities for my families. Uh, and then uh, I remember right the day on the results day, even before I got my results, I got an email from Lester saying, you got in. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, do I have to go and collect this? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did go. I was very happy that I got into Leicester. And I think I was happy for like a day or so. And then the question started to reek in like, oh my God, how are you going to make friends? Like all these kids are going to be a year younger than you. Mm. They know you, they, they would have known that you retook your year. How, how are you going to mingle with these kids? And on top of that, my parents made me uh, go and live with another Tamil family. Oh. I did not even live in halls. So I was already terrified that I'm going to be alone. Mm. And on top of this, the fact that I will not meet people. And lectures, what, you're in room full of like, 500 other students mm. how the hell am i gonna make friends mm. um and even in tutorials everybody is so compete like so competitive in their first year yeah. at least my group was like they just had an opinion on everything mm. and i was like there's no way i'm gonna make friends i like i told you i went to my brother and i asked how, how do i introduce myself how do i how do i create a conversation and like let it like, you know, let it develop into a friendship. And I remember Googling things and they said, buy some posters that would, you know, if somebody was to go past your halls, 
what holes, mate? I didn't even live in holes. Oh, true, true. Yeah, leave your door open. <laughs> leave your door open. Yeah. So, silly me, thinking that I would live in holes, I would convince my parents. I bought, like, a Friends poster. I bought a Michael Jackson poster. And I bought a uh, Marilyn Monroe poster. Because I had, like, big things to say about these things. Mm. Okay? And I was like, this is going to be a conversation starter. I put that in a wars in a Tamil family who had no idea what these three things were. <laughs> and <laughs> I was brilliant. like, uh, excellent. So... For an entire month, I didn't uh, mingle with anybody. Yeah. It was just nine o'clock, going to lectures, and then coming home, speaking to no one. Um, but during the second month, when I was like, "Dick, she fucking got it together now. You, this can't be your life." Everybody I've met have told me that uni is the best time of their life. What are they talking about? They must mean something, like you know. Mm. Um, so I remember I, I always sit next to this girl. Uh, and like we always choose run to the same seat to sit like you know she has a particular seat and I have a particular seat mm. so I remember uh, like you know saying hi sorry to be awkward just wanted to say hi my name is Tixie we're gonna clearly see each other every day mm-hmm. but if you need anything from me I'm here mm-hmm. I still have that note that first ever note that we, we spoke and she introduced herself uh, would you believe it? That's the girl that I went to Sydney with. Wait, you're the, the, the girl that's the chaos and the silence? No, no, no. This is the girl uh, that I met in, like, you know, she, she was the first girl I met in lectures and I, I spoke to her. Okay. Um, and she was the girl, a few years later, I went to uh, Sydney with for a year abroad. And she was the girl that I participated in mooting with. And we went to the finals. Okay. And to this day, we're still on talking basis. Wow. So, yeah, I would never let her go because she was the first person I spoke to. Um, but what you're referring to, so before all of this, in the restaurant, I told Mo that there were two friends that I met in uni who were um, the chaos in my silence. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I give them this big title is because uh, I feel like after meeting them, I uh, laughter came back into my life. You know, seeing the lighter side of things came back mm. into my life. And these dark moments when I was questioning myself, you know, my I had people who believed in me to say, like, Oh, just, you know, don't listen to that. You know, believe in yourself. Who who I didn't have to explain myself and they just got me. You mm. know, they got my principles. They got who I was very quickly. Mm. And uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't want me to adjust because in uni, you have to adjust. You have to, like, especially in your first year, you have to, like, Fit be it. a bit like water, you know, whatever flows. <laughs> you know, you can't be like a solid ice there. <laughs> you have to be water. Uh, and these girls came into my life and they're like, you can be whoever you want. We'll like you for who you are. And that gave me the confidence that I think I needed. Wow. I think you videoed me, didn't you? I videoed some of it, yeah, because it was so brilliant. So, yeah, those, the, those girls um, were my, the chaos in my silence. Unfortunately, wow. though, I don't speak to one of them. Wow, no, that's brilliant. Um, tell me, it sounds, it sounds like what you've gone through in first year of university is not that uncommon. I think there's two versions of what people go through. One of the versions is what I went through, which is this kind of undying need to try and live um, almost an unattainable version of what university life is portrayed it should be. And so I ended up going to all these parties and befriending all these people. And I also lived off campus. I lived in a house full of students, but slightly off campus, had to get a bus to campus. And so I didn't have the halls experience. So what I did to go for take take whatever you want off um so the so what so what me and a friend of mine did that lived with me we spent all our times on hall all our time in halls we went to every halls of residence we went to every party you can think of 
went clubbing we we did we did pretty much everything the traditional uni experience you would think of however second year rolls around and i realize i don't want to be friends with any of these people i, I know this you know the feeling so i so i do the clubbing and the the, the you name it we won't get into yeah. details but do a bit of everything that first year should do and i just realize upon sitting in lectures next to these people i used to go out with i don't like them they're not bad people they're great in their own ways but just not vibing with them just when you're you know alert during the day and you're in your right state of mind and you're not in a dark room you just really like yeah i don't vibe with these people and it sounds like the other the other flip side is where people they have a harder time in the beginning but it's worth it because they meet their true friends or the people that kind of accept them for who they are earlier on so it's kind of patience as you were saying walk me through your uh second year of university i have to say i i was very much the same in terms of once i met uh the two girls they led me to like other friends and i also made the mistake of being water and i was like okay whatever they want i will be you know you know i'll go clubbing and uh, i'll be this girl but i always i was always the one who was always fighting with them mm. <laughs> like you know they would say some silly things and i would always be the first one wa- fighting with these people but i will always spend a lot of time with them then come second year i was like wait why do i keep fighting with these people when i could just stop hanging out with them mm. you know um so they would say uh, things that a feminist wouldn't hear wouldn't want to hear and uh, you know uh and so I made a conscious decision in my second year to be like, you know what, I get to choose who I hang out with. Mm. I get to choose who I spend my time with. Mm. But I think I also made the mistake of saying, okay, let's be two, like two with just be in like, how do I say? Um, we didn't go, as, go out as much. We just stuck to those one click, yeah. you know? And we didn't do a lot of exploring, which is what uni is for. You know, uni is for meeting new people, uh, learning new experiences. And I think in my second year, I slowed down a bit because I, th- I, I felt that I did, I went overboard in my first year because I did the clubbing. I did the going home at four o'clock in the morning, leaving home at four o'clock in the morning, mm. you know, doing silly things like let's get pizza or ice cream at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, let's go for a walk at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> let's do everything at four o'clock in the morning. morning. <laughs> just not sleep basically um and i was like that's not the life mama needs her sleep um so in my second year i quietened down and i focused on other things so i joined a society right um i joined the tamil society and i took on some responsibility so i wasn't really in the mood for partying i was just like i have responsibility given to me let me just focus on that but the fun that i had was with my like specific people that i chose um but i do think in hindsight that did restrict me because like i said uni is for meeting like people like-minded people and i think i just stuck to one kind where i could have expanded a little bit more not that i'm complaining if they're hearing this not that i'm complaining i love you guys but (laughs) i could have expanded i could have uh because there was always that fear like oh i found the people who've accepted me why do i need to go and find out for more you know that's just restricting your circles you should always be trying to find uh, others who who disagree with you who make you better and you're not always going to find that in your in your main circles you know you you have to go out and try and um bend the rules and explore which i didn't do uh unfortunately but then that's what sydney was for mm. so yeah should i do i go yeah sure um 
So it sounds like first year, kind of you immerse yourself, you're trying to become water, trying to fit in, doing all the classic things that were fed to us in uni, what uni experience should be like. Second year, you slow down, you kind of attach yourself closer to people. What was the transition in third year? Because I know third year, interesting, we had a Skype uh, conversation and you did a year abroad and I often say if I have any regrets from university the only one I have is not doing a year abroad you did a year abroad in Sydney Australia and that also involves you uh, traveling to New Zealand and across Australia and you had this dog and it sounded like quite a transformational experience because it was the first time where you were truly alone um, you're still in contact with your family and friends but you kind of had this peace of mind um let, yeah, walk us through that whole year, really. I mean, not everything, but just let me know. What was that year like, effectively? I loved, loved my year abroad. If there's anyone who's young enough to apply for a year abroad, please apply and go. Go as far as possible if you can. Don't just stick to Europe. Go as far, far as possible you can. Uh, in my second year, actually before that, when I was looking for universities to apply, I, I, I predominantly applied to universities that... Um, said that allowed students to go and do their year abroad. Yeah. With Leicester, well, one of the best things was uh, they said, um, in your first year, regardless of what degree you do, if you get more than 50%, you're eligible to apply for a year abroad. Mm. And luckily, in my first year, I, I got above 50%. Mm. So, and then, like I told you, they gave me a map and said, choose a place. And I said, what's the furthest away? And that was Sydney. And I was like, I'm picking Sydney. Wow. Um, well, I had a choice between Sydney and Melbourne. And I was like, let me calculate how far it is from my university to the beach, and Sydney was the closest. Wow. So I was like, Sydney it is. So um, I took a risk, went to, uh, I knew no one in Sydney, but luckily Tamils know each other everywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, they're connected everywhere. So I told a friend, can you find me a house? And she did her bit, my mom did her bit, and my friend came back to me and said, uh, there's a lady in Sydney, um, she recently lost her husband, um, and um, all these years she, you know, they've asked her apparently before to like rent the house out and mm. give it to someone, and she's always said no. But this time around, something for some odd reason, she said yes. We still talk about this uh, today with her. Uh, she said yes, so I flew out to meet this family that I've never met before. Wow. Uh, uh, the, my landlord's um, daughter came to pick me up, extremely nice. And and then I lived a year, uh, yeah, so I in spent an entire year there. Uh, it was just me uh, and the lady, her name is Indra, uh, Indra, and she was probably the best thing uh, that could have happened to me in Sydney. Um, when my grandmother passed away, I didn't go to see her because I didn't have the British passport. We were still um, having our immigration application going through, so I couldn't see my grandma. And after that, she's the only lady who came close to my grandma. She, my, I, in my mind, my grandma represents the purest forms, form of uh, goodness and happiness. Mm -hmm. And after that, it was this lady. Like, I, we used to spend hours and hours uh, uh, talking, and we had a big age gap. You know, she was in 65 years old, and I was 21. Wow. And but we would sit uh, every single, not every single day. That's a lie. But we would sit and talk for hours and hours, and we would just have uh, something to talk about. And of course, the main star. Is the dog? Mm. What was the dog's name? Sunny. Sunny. Yeah, Sunny. I would. I would kill for Sunny. I would die for Sunny. <laughs> the, I think that that's a bit extreme. But the reason why I say is, is because 
Sunny was um, unfortunately uh, a dog that was bought um, by the uh, the landlord's daughter when you know when she was going through some things. And she bought the dog. She looked after the dog for a while, but she got busy, and the dog was uh, not looked after pro- properly. Mm. My landlord did um, like feed the dog well. She would always go shopping to buy him the best meat. But she was because she was old. She was very worried that you know she, he would jump up, uh, jump up on her, and she might fall. So in terms of ex- exercises and interacting with people, it was very small. So the reason why I connected with him is because he was very much like me in that he was very closed off. Mm. Like when I first went to him and showed him his attention, he was like, "Who the fuck are you, bitch? Mm. Like you're gonna be here for a few days and then you're gonna bounce." Mm. So mm. and it took me a long time to get his trust. Mm. And I was like, we, it was like a two-way thing. Like, you know, he was in, a, you know, I think it took me six months to finally gain his trust. And for, for him to finally, when he heard the gate open and he knows it's me that's coming at that time, for him to come running to that gate mm. with his t- a tail wagging. Six months. Mm. Because he, he, did not, he didn't think I was going to stay for that long. He didn't want to give his heart to me straight away. And, you know, dogs. And he was a golden retriever and a Labrador mix. Wow. Okay? He was the... Uh, the dog dog okay <laughs> <laughs> like the, the face of dogs okay, okay. Um, but because of his some what his own experiences he was closed off mm. and i had to you know give him uh foot rubs every day back rubs every day wow. he made me work for it this guy okay the only guy he's made me work for it but he changed my life in the things that he taught me patience yeah he taught me nothing indirectly he taught me that nothing comes easy like if i want something out of so, like you know if I want something so bad I have to work for it and that was through that was I was learning that through this different connection wow. um, and of course in other sense traveling uh, to Sydney was all about self-independence leaving my parents and whether I can leave my parents leave my comfortable life and go somewhere else mm. and call that home mm. and I definitely can call Sydney home I feel like I left a bit of my soul in Sydney uh, because I made a life for myself I made people I met people that I've never met before uh, like the lady that I met like when I would always have a connection to, uh, with, with her that nobody can like you know try to understand because for a year she was my mother you know uh, and to a point that my parents see her as a mother too because of how much I love her you know that's and I've never met this lady before and I've only spent a year with her um, if you see in terms of life in my 25 years of life just one year was spent with her but that connection was made forever so um, so th- it was great in that sense um, I traveled a bit so like you said I went to uh, south of New Zealand I went to Singapore uh, I went to uh, Melbourne uh, Cairns uh, in Australia um, but yeah all of that on my bu- mon- like money that student finance gave but also I budgeted so some you stretch the budget yeah. far. Yeah, I did. Um, if I didn't go to New Zealand, then I would have come ha- home with a thousand pounds. But I was like, screw this thousand pounds. Oh. I'm going to New Zealand. I'm going to see where Lord of the Rings took place. So I'm going to see if that was real. <laughs> and uh, I was blown away by its beauty. Um, and New Zealand is, I have to mention New Zealand, it's, it's a very, it's all about nature and the beauty of nature. And it's so silent in the sense, so the silence is so numbing in that it makes you want to think makes you want to test your character like some like some places when you're traveling and it, because we, we were doing a tour uh, and it was done in nine days there was a lot of times where you were just on the bus and you're driving through new zealand and it's raining there and you're just you, your mind wanders and i think that's when i was like what do i want in life you know i'm nearly near the end of this journey like 
what is it that will make me happy? I had all these questions and I was trying to find the answers through these traveling moments. And traveling isn't always as, as amazing as people put it out to be. You feel lonely at certain moments. You feel like you, you've made a mistake by leaving home and coming, this, coming to a new place. But these are hurdles that you come, come get over. Yeah, and I think you you like you find these answers, but just being in a different place in a different scenario, like you can find answers a lot easier because I think being, for example, being in London, I just I know what I'm gonna do next. Mm. I know right now after this I have to go home. Mm. I know what I'm doing tomorrow. But when you're traveling, it's like, what am I gonna see tomorrow? I don't know. Who am I gonna meet? I don't know. You know, so I think traveling is so essential to who you are as a character. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest thing I did when I traveled was to do the bungee jumping. Yes, tell us about that. The bungee jumping, yo, yo, yeah. <laughs> the bungee jumping, I've never been so scared in my entire life. The way bungee jumping happened was we went in uh, Queenstown in New Zealand. Nice. And that's the town that's known for um, uh, people who want to do crazy things like bungee jumping, zip lining, anything you can imagine, you, uh, Queenstown is the place. So I did the safe thing, zip lining, and I was like, yo, I'm out. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, when I was zip lining, I went like, uh, my rope went, uh, did something, and then I went underneath, and I was like, that's it, that's it, that's it. I've done all that I can do. Yeah. Um, but um, the guy who was doing the tour with us, he was like, uh, Tixie, you can't leave Queenstown without like doing something. And then he just ev got everybody hyped up, and everybody started saying my name. And then I was like, okay, okay, it's bungee jumping, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then it happened all so fast. We parked up. They took me through this way. And they were like, okay, sign this, sign this. And I was like, what am I signing? Sign your life away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't tell me that at that time, you know. Sign this, sign this. And they were like, how do you spell your name? I was like, there I am, take my time to spell my name properly. And then they, then they take me somewhere. And I'm walking on this ledge. And they're like, okay, uh, sit down, please. And they, uh, they're covering my uh, like foot. Yeah, legs. tying my legs with uh, towels. Towels, okay. Towels. And ropes. That's, That's it. so scary. That's scary. And then the guys... There's no clips or anything. There's no harness. As in like, uh, there's, ha there's harness in terms of like just on your leg. But the way they cover this is just with two towels. What if the towels slip off? But it, because of the, the rope is tight, right? So it's too tight. It's tight. It's That's not like loose. But still, it's... Wow. Okay. So till they did all of that, I was fine. Then, you know, you have... So this is where they do the towel thing. And then you have to walk. Mm. And this is where you jump off. Okay. Till that point, I was fine. But the moment I saw when I was going there and I looked down, my bum was shaking. <laughs> That's how nervous I was. Cool. Usually, every jump is 90 seconds from you getting to the point where they fix you up and then you get to that point and you jump off and then you go upstairs. That's fully 90 seconds. Mm. Okay? I took an entire five-minute detour because <laughs> I still have the video, I will show it to you in our free time, where I, couldn't, I wouldn't let go. Because I was so terrified of my life. You wouldn't let go of the ledge. Yeah. The no, as in like, um, whenever they would be like, one, two, three, go. I kept holding the guy behind me. Oh. And he was like, you can't hold me because I am not tied up to anything. And you could kill me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, that yeah. <laughs> he didn't say that. He uh, And then he was trying to be so inspiring. He was like, um, you know, I know you're feeling scared right now. But once you jump off, you wouldn't feel any of this. You would feel amazing. Just trust me. Go for it. He said it to me so many times for one minute passed, two minutes passed. I'm still saying no. I'm saying no, no. And then the last thing he said to me that made me jump off, he said, the ticket is not refundable. <laughs> 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 and that it means a lot to a person who is traveling, who has paid $120. That's true. And I was like, 
What you saying? I'm jumping up now. The money is the driver. People the, see you like money. Money. Yeah. I was like, okay, okay, look, look. Let me just talk to myself. And I was like, okay. Let me just jump off this ledge. I was I like, I was like, I paid for this. Uh, I can't just go back. I mean, like, I paid one twenty for nothing. Uh, so I was like, okay, let me do this. And I did it. It felt amazing. I don't think I'll do it again though. Mm. But it felt amazing. Um, I remember when I like fell and the people down uh, below and the boat when they got me they were like you took your time like everybody was waiting for me that's how yeah. much um, and then after that it was it was amazing so wow. I did my bungee jumping in Queen, um, borderline of Queenstown and then I did my skydiving in Sydney amazing walk me through the skydive because that's something I still haven't done and I skydiving is amazing were you s- more scared of the skydiving than the bungee jumping? Yeah, uh, no, I was. Yeah, I was scared of the bu- bungee jumping because with skydiving, I had someone behind me. And you had you were strapped in. Yeah, I was strapped the bungee in. Bungee jumping is this towel business. It's towel business. That's what And there's me. nothing to hold on to. And literally, if you see the video where I'm falling down, I'm trying to hold on to my rope, mm. and I'm doing this weird thing where I'm like finding something. And it, but it was amazing. Uh, with the skydiving, there was someone behind me. And uh, what the weird thing was, I, I, I went with a friend and uh, she went before me. So we were all numbered, like mm. first person to jump off, second person to jump off. So uh, we were going up. I was feeling nervous. I was feeling nervous. And then she was the first person to go off, right, my friend. Wow. She screamed in a way that I've never heard her scream before. That's and I was crazy. like, I'm dying here. This is it. This is my life ending. And then, um, so they tell you to hold, put your hand like this yeah. uh, when you jump so, off. So put your hand in like a cross shape, yeah. right? Yes. Uh, and then they will tap you on your back when you have to let go after 90 seconds of free fall. Okay. Um, so he tapped me and I was like, no, honey, <laughs> I am not letting go of my hand. <laughs> and then he kept tapping me. I was like, no, no, not doing it. He was like, then he tapped me really hard. And then I was like, okay, okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe I should do this. And then uh, once I did it, it was so beautiful. On one end, I can see mountains. Um, and then on the other end, I, it was fully the ocean, but I can't see the end. Wow. Like literally, I'm trying to look as far as possible, but um, all I see is, I c- um, clearly the ocean extends far, but I can't see, seem to see the end. The, the world just goes, yeah. It was an amazing experience. Wow. Again, would I do that again? I'm not sure, I've done it once though. How did that year change your character? Um. It made me more self uh, I had more a lot more self confidence than before. Before when I did my retake year, uh, I knew that wherever I go, I'll be fine. Mm. You know, I think this is something that most refugees have is you can make a home out of anything. Yes. Because, you know, I've I've gone from my home to my second home, which is UK, and then I tried to make Sydney my home, and I was successful. Mm. And I feel like that gave me that push to be like, okay, I can do it. I can go anywhere I want and maybe try and make a hat at home. Um, Another way it changed me is um, I let go of the things that was holding me back. You let go of the past. Let go of the past that was holding me back. Uh, Some grudges that I was holding. Uh, Some some anger. I, you know, one of the bad things that I took from my dad was his anger. And uh, an anger that's, uh, I think, still this day affects me. But I try to let go of that anger. Mm. Um, so when I now I'm a li- little bit more calm and collected. Mm. But back in the days, I, I used to get angry very quickly, mm. and I used to make uh, rush decisions very quickly. Like you know, um, 
I think it's it suits the way they say, like when you're at a loss, never make a decision. Like, yeah, that went into my head, you know. Yeah. Uh, I watched a lot more movies. I uh, favorite movies. Oh, there's so many. There's give so me, um, give me, give me five of your favorite films, or three of th- three films you really enjoy. Okay. Uh, I would say Shutter Island. Oh, that's an amazing one. Um, I'm now I have to think of movies that doesn't have Leonardo DiCaprio in. Uh, Shutter Island. Oh, you put me on in the. Oh, Just sh- three that you enjoyed. Beautiful Mind. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Beautiful wow. Mind. Classics. Um, have you seen Ben Hur? No. It's an old classic movie. Ben what? Her. Ben Hur. How do I spell it? Uh, B-E-N-H-U-R. Okay, what's it about? It's about the uh, Roman Empire and the fight. It's like a big, big movie. Like I think one of the high-budgeted movies of the time. Mm. My dad, when I still remember when he bought the DVD when he like when he found it in UK and he and uh, he had the sound system set up and he put this movie on. He was and that was like my first introduction to an English movie. Wow. And I didn't understand what that movie was talking about. Mm. I had to watch it later in the years to understand what was happening. But the whole uh, way it was done, the way it was directed, top notch. Wow, wow. Just, uh, j- we'll take a break in a minute. I'll just, uh, before the break, I will say, for me, ooh, Catch Me If You Can. Amazing movie. Uh, just because it's so amazing. The story's amazing if you... Leonardo DiCaprio and if you listen to the story it's based on a true story that's amazing too but I love how Leonardo DiCaprio kind of navigates through pretending to be all these different characters I just there's something brilliant there's one scene in Catch Me If You Can where uh, the FBI uh, detective tracks him down to his hotel room and he doesn't know what uh, Leonardo DiCaprio actually looks like Mm -hmm. and uh, Tom Hanks doesn't um, Tom Hanks is the FBI agent yeah. named Han Ratty in the thing and he tracks Leonardo DiCaprio and Leonardo DiCaprio very skillfully pretends to be an FBI agent and says, uh, you know, almost plays this tough guy role and says, yeah, like I'm, I'm here, I'm scoping out I'm scoping out this kid and um, Tom Hanks, Han Ratty, the FBI agent says, well, let's see some ID sort of thing and Leonardo DiCaprio kind of stalls him and pulls out his wallet very confidently and gives it to the FBI agent. And the FBI agent looks at the wallet and doubts himself and is like, hmm, I don't, um, no, it's fine. I don't, he, he didn't want to be embarrassed just in case Leonardo DiCaprio wasn't lying. Mm-hmm. So Leonardo DiCaprio quickly takes like his checks and all of his counterfeiting goods and he's like, all right, I'm going to just put this in the car outside and take it to the station. He puts it in the car and just as he's driving off, Han Ratty, the FBI agent, opens the wallet Isn't and sees... No, this is like in the middle yeah, of the film. Okay. He sees like it's some stupid Coca-Cola, some dumb thing, some dumb... Uh, it's not even an ID, oh. but the, 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 the confidence that Leonardo DiCaprio constantly mm-hmm. portrays through the yeah, film. Yeah. There's so many lessons in that movie. That's definitely one of my favorite ones. Fight Club as well, but it's more of a political. Oh my god! You forgot Fight Club. Fight Club. How can you forget Fight Club? Fight Club constantly. How can I forget that movie? You know what's funny about Fight Club? It took me maybe six or seven times to actually watch that movie. So many people recommended Fight Club to me, and um, 
this is when I was a bit younger, but still, people were like, you need to watch Fight Club. And I'd always get to the scene where so they're on the plane. And I was like, fuck, this is boring. And I'd switch off. And then only when I watched it in its entirety, was I like, oh, oh my, my God, God, I love this, this movie. What movie. took me so long? There are so many other movies I could uh, I could mention. With what? Fight Club, I have to say, Go whatever was said in Fight Club, people have recycled what was said in Fight Club and made it their own. But it all comes back to Fight Club. It all comes back from Fight Club. It's that scene where uh, Brad Pitt puts um, acid on his... Uh, on the uh, Ed Nor- uh, Edward Norton's hand, yeah. and then the questions that he asks, or the conversation they have in the bars, these are things that people have tried to recreate in their own sentences, they but or recycle them way too much. What, one of them, one of them is, um, I think it was about advertising, and it was saying something like, "We, we, we work jobs we yes, hate yes, that's uh, recycled. to buy to buy shit that we can't afford." Yeah. To, to impress people that we don't like. That's definitely one of my favorite quotes in the whole film. The, lo- the, the third one, I mean, I have so many movies I really, truly enjoy. One that I watched very recently, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to watch it, is called The Adjustment Bureau with Matt Damon. Oh, Matt Damon and... Uh, I forgot the name of the act, oh, the female. She's married to... She's John, hot, though. John, <laughs> I know her, uh, John... Emily... Emily Blunt? I don't know. No, Emily not. Blunt. Is it Emily, Emily Blunt? Blunt? Okay. So he's a congressman and he's just not a very good one. Yeah. And I haven't seen that movie. Either. I like how everything's predetermined in that movie. Yeah. And the Adjustment Bureau, these guys that are like, they come in and they hack time and they make a series of moves to ensure that people's lives go a certain way. And for whatever reason, they were intent on Matt Damon not meeting Emily Blunt and to cut a long story short one of the members of the Adjustment Bureau helps Matt Damon hack this system and beat the system effectively and what's so interesting about the film is it shows how life is in some ways predetermined by a series of choices just being at the right place at the right time but how you can change that narrative how you can change that story so those are three we will take uh, a little a little break just to consolidate how things have gone I personally am uh, exceptionally happy with the interview at the moment, and we will. Fight Club, the introduction to Marla Singer. Oh. Okay, Marla Singer Fight Club introduction, where she's smoking. Watch the movie, guys. Watch the movie so you know what we're talking about. And we're back after many off camera conversations, some embarrassing that won't be featured on this podcast, thank God. Um. We've spoken a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm conscious of the time. We both want to get the last train. And um, I kind of want to touch on our friendship. How did we become friends? Why did we become friends? I remember uh, moving from year 8 to year 9. 9DH. And I moved to a class that was a lot more rowdy, a lot more loud. I didn't really know anyone in the class but you and a group of other people took me under their wing. So let's talk about that. And first impressions. I love to play the first impressions game. When did we first meet? meet? Tell them the story about uh, the trip to Wales, Quinta in year seven, and then we'll transition from that to year nine. From the, what I just said before? Yeah, from what I just said before. Minus the link of it. Okay, so in year seven, we went... Uh, uh, the school took us on a small trip. Um, I had various issues. We'll park that aside. Side. 
Um, so um, there was a particular task where I think we had to cover the, uh, they filled a bucket with water and we had to cover the holes and in order to make sure that the water doesn't fall. Um, and we had, I think, team of people, but me and you were the only one who was focused enough to get this going. And it was raining and it was such a bad weather, but uh, me and you did not let go. We were so focused. And I think me and you were the only one working together to get this task done. And at one point we couldn't ha uh, finish the task. We couldn't hold the, all the uh, holes. And I think the uh, water fell on you. And then uh, I remember us walking inside the building and. And we were just talking, saying our name uh, to like introducing ourselves. And then once we got in, like uh, we separated for some reason. I don't know why. But I remember, uh, I think I still remember this. Um, I remember walking through this hallway and then be like, oh, shit, I forgot his name. And then I went back to see if you were there, but you had already gone away. So I was like, oh, damn, like I'm never going to see this guy. Um, then fast forward to uh, a year later. You are sitting in my form. Okay. And, but my first ever memory of you is French class. Okay. Yeah, that's when you were sat next to me. Interesting. I think it's because of our surname. No. <laughs> it can't be <laughs> no. Mohammed Hassan. No. <laughs> S. No, no, no. Uh, but we were in the back. Yeah. And, um, and then me and you started talking. Yeah. And I think I liked you immediately because I... This might be my weakness and my strength is yeah. I have I have a sense of like people when I see them and like um, I, c I can tell when I'm going to get along with somebody and when I'm not going to get along with somebody. Um, and the people that I normally get uh, get along with are people who don't tell me to change my character. Like I'm a bit loud sometimes and people who don't say, oh, like you're doing a bit too much. Why didn't you quiet down? I hate the word calm down. Just hate it. And. You were this relaxed kid who was willing to take all the ridiculous thing that I've said to you, <laughs> like in the past two years, in the far, in the time that we knew each other, all the things, I think crazy, crazy things I've said to you, and you tried to reason with me, like you've never tried to question it. So it's like, okay, let's think about this for like he was very calm. I just saw you as this wise guy, like <laughs> you were way beyond your time, and you were extremely nice, and and that kindness was just obvious from the way the, you know from your face I, I would say like this yeah that energy that you had it was just pure kindness and um like you know there's a lot of students who are com uh, we're, we're in a competitive environment and you you didn't have that nature and i don't think i had i have that nature too so i think we worked well together and you're a bit knowledgeable um what i find that uh people live in like a circle and they don't come up outside that circle um and i think me and you are willing to have these conversations you're willing to listen to my story and i was willing i hope i was willing to hear your yeah, uh, story um so i've always respected you uh and thought you were a very good friend very i have very few uh, male friends in my life and i i could i could count them and you're one of them in that list so that. so mo i definitely like you oh my gosh but yes i uh and you're the only boy i mentioned in my house oh wow yeah That's for a privilege. yeah very long because you know you're not allowed to mention any of the boy, boy mates but mo was a name that was mentioned frequently in the house I'm I'm yeah so that's why today when i told my dad i'm meeting mohammed hassan he knew who you were I'm so great. so yeah you've gone to that level 
what role has friendship played in your life during the the high moments and the low moments uh i love uh, uh this talk, this question um because i have a lot to say about my friends who i am thankful to uh for everything because uh outside your family they're they are the people that you choose to spend your time with to share your fears with and to say things that you would not normally tell your family um and i got very very lucky with mine i think from the get go i've be, uh, i've chosen my pe- my tribe and i've always stuck with my tribe regardless of whether there were issues or where time has gone i could like you know call them up and i'll be able to have a conversation with them for example you mm. you know there was no awkwardness we got into com- like conversations very quickly we haven't seen each other like in the flesh yeah what? almost 10 years almost 10 years crazy almost 10 years and yeah (laughs) nothing has changed and uh and i and i've been so blessed um in terms of uh the reason why i say i'm blessed is because um whenever i go into this depressive state or whenever i let my dark side get over and win Mm -hmm. i feel like i can always turn to my friends to make me feel better and uh, I think especially with girls, you need a, a, a tribe of women who are behind you, who are pushing you forward, who are always testing you, who are always uh, hoping better things happen for you, who are not competing with you because that's what society wants you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, compete in terms of like beauty, in terms of uh, um, knowledge. Uh, whereas I have a bunch of females who not only say that I look, I look amazing when I wear uh, what I like certain things, and um, but also say that I'm clever enough to go and apply for these job roles and to push myself forward. Um, so I'm very lucky in that sense, um, and I think they've helped me the most in my dark times, more than my family because th- my family doesn't know all of the aspects that I go through. Whereas you know there are certain friends that I can, I can just share without hiding anything. Like this is what I'm going through. These are what my thoughts are. Like you know how do I get out of this? Um, but it's not easy. Like uh, it does take a lot for me to come and tell them what what my dark sides are because I always think, I think I'm not only me. I think a lot of people can relate. Like some of the harsh things that we say to ourselves, it's uh, we only realize it's harsh when we try to explain it to someone else. Like I am. This is what I'm thinking about myself. And I always tell myself, would you ever say that to your friend? That's brilliant. Yeah. Would you ever say that to your friend that you love so dearly? Why why would you then? Why would you say that to yourself? You know um friends have given me some really harsh advice that has made me step up my game uh they have uh always you know been my side when i do naughty things and have always had my back uh in uni me and my friends had the saying if we were caught in a place that we were not meant to be my friends had a set of dialogues that they had to tell my parents <laughs> that was prepared pre yeah Akio has covered me in the best of times oh really <laughs> I'll tell you off camera what a Sure, sure. But he covered me. It led to one of the best experiences I've ever had because he covered me so well. No. Yep. In uni, I had a car. So I always um, had this fear that I would be caught in a place where I was not meant to be. Interesting. And I, before we left, or like we always had this plan, like what do we say mm. if my parent was to catch me? Mm. Like what's, the, you know, we had those prepared. And it was, it's amazing. So th- crazy things that you do with your friends. You can't take them away. But you have to be careful with who you choose to spend your time with. You have to be uh, careful with who you let in your space because uh, a negative friend or, or a negative mindset can influence you. Yes. Uh, like the wrong group of, um, but it's a trial and error. You can sometimes go with the wrong, you know group of people but you will learn your lesson 
but that's how you know you know you that's how i think that's why uni is the best time because you know what works for you and what doesn't work for you and that sets the standards for how you treat meet people when in the future like whether it's in the workplace in a professional environment or in a personal environment though you need time and your high school time is the time where you set your standards this is what i'm expecting in a friend this is what a friend should do if you ask my friends about me they would complain uh, i think i think uh, they would say that i have high expectations okay. um i think that is necessary in a friendship because if we're pl- we place so much expectations on on a relationship uh, like a a, 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 romantic a romantic relationship on how the partner should behave how the partner should be but we take friendship so easily but friendship are the are the type of relationship that stick with you through through it all like a romantic partner can come and leave in a, in a you know in a matter of time whereas friendships can last a very long time and uh, at least in my mind friendship is something that doesn't judge you by what you do is always there by your side and you know that's what friendship is meant to be so why wouldn't i have a high standard to a person who is standing beside me and you know who i want who if i want them in how do i say this i want what's best for them and i think that's what they want for me so i would always hold them accountable to their actions and to the standard that you think will bring the best out of them. Yeah, to the best out of them. Just quickly, I, I, I'm just conscious of the time and the last train, and I think you've done a brilliant job. I'm going to end with two questions. The first question is what I like to call the three truths. I've stolen this from uh, uh, a podcast called The School of Greatness by Lewis Howes. And I'll just quickly say this. You're on your last day. You've achieved everything that you've wanted to achieve. You've become Prime Minister of Tamil Nadu. <laughs> um, you've written multiple books. You've changed lives. You've okay. Your activism successful. All of that's erased. And you're with your family. You're with your great-great-grandkids. It's your last day on earth. And all you have is, to, uh, is a pen and a piece of paper. And you can write down three truths, three things so far that you know to be true about what you've experienced. Share your wisdom with the world in three bullet point statements. Three life lessons that are most meaningful for you at this point in time. Go. Can I think about, okay, for three, yeah? Three. Um, Friendship is important. Uh, Find people who spark your soul. Um, Number two, uh, having an or uh, having a thought, whether that's a small thought or a big thought, having an original thought that you think reflects you is so vital to your happiness. Mm. Uh, you know, so always, always um, be true to yourself. Uh, number three is um, no matter what happens, family is is important. Wow. Brilliant three truths. I put you under the spot more than anyone else. So I appreciate, you know, you might go home and think, damn, I have another three. But those (laughs) those were three good three ones, um, given the the time constraint. Next one's the billboard question. You can put anything on a billboard. Let's keep it to a sentence. Any phrase. And millions of people will see this billboard. What do you write on the billboard? Okay, so a few that I've heard 
Um, you know, there's a classic be the change that you want to see. You're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Um, one girl, a good friend of mine called Anusha Basantha, who's actually Tamil, interestingly, she said, um, um, feel the fear and do it anyway. So people have come with different ones. I forgot Akil's one. Um, but yeah, what would you write on a billboard if you knew millions of people could see it? Oh, okay. Okay. I have two. Go on. One is an original one that I've said to you. Go for it. Um, so I would say something like, uh, uh, where's the chaos in all the silence? Interesting. Okay. Another one is, I will say, I was stolen from a Tamil song. And I think I have it in as my Instagram bio. Right. Um, it's in Tamil, but if you were to translate it, it says, change is the question, change is the answer. Say it for us in Tamil. Marching Levina, Marching Levide. Wow. And on that note, um, Dikshika, thank you so much. I know that we will be having a less time pressured conversation next time we meet. Yeah. I know that we've just scratched the surface in terms of what you have to offer, your perspectives on things, uh, your knowledge, your insight. There's a lot of stuff that we kept off the podcast for very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my laughs> but God. yeah, but we'll, we'll, we'll giggle about it amongst ourselves. But um, thank you. Thank you for an enlightening conversation. And that is that, guys. If you want to listen to this podcast, you can on Apple iTunes coming very soon called Let's Talk with Mohassan or soundcloud.com slash Mohassan 92. All right, we better get out of here. <laughs>